0: Hypertensive Disorders in Pregnancy. My goodness, we sure have learned a lot in a short amount of time, haven't we? I mean, just over the last about four years, there's been so much data out and shifts in management that really is affecting how we take care of high blood pressure antepartum, intrapartum, for example, with the use of oral antihypertensive meds, in addition to the already available IV medications. And now there's new data about how we possibly should be treating postpartum hypertension. And this has to do with that age-old rivalry between those two partners in the same race, labetalol and nifedipine. In this podcast, we're going to cover an article that is coming out in October in the Green Journal that was actually published ahead of print on September the 8th, this month, because we're taping this on September the 28th. This is original research coming out on October the 1st called Postpartum Readmission for Hypertension After Discharge on Labetalol or nifedipine. Which one's better at keeping patients out of the hospital as bounce backs when they're released postpartum on either labetalol or nifedipine? Well, you'd be surprised. We're going to cover all this information and the big limitations. So You got to listen to the end because this new article, while very, very insightful, has some really big limitations that I'm not quite sure if this is ready for prime time just yet. So don't give up until the end because that end limitation is a big deal. Let's cover postpartum readmission for hypertension after discharge on labetalol compared with nifedipine. Our goal is to keep everyone up to date in practicing evidence-based medicine because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Just recently, two publications have changed the way that we look at and manage hypertension, specifically antepartum. I know that this article that we're going to cover and summarize deals with postpartum, but I don't want to lose the value here of antepartum because this really does intimately tie in to this new article about postpartum discharge. But here's the catch. Remember that two trials, CHAP and CHIP, really changed our management regarding hypertension antepartum. CHAP was chronic hypertension and pregnancy, and CHIP, which is a separate trial, was control of hypertension in pregnancy. So CHAP and CHIP. And I've got podcasts on that you can go back in the archives and look. But this was critical because traditionally we never gave patients antihypertensive medications until they reached a critical value, which was severe. Oh, they're not 160 over 110 yet. They'll be fine. We can keep going at their 150s over high 90s. That's okay. But But what CHAP and CHIP actually found is by treating to a goal of 140 over 90 as the trigger point for medication, it can actually prevent escalation. In other words, it can keep them maintained and it can prevent them from exacerbating their condition and progressing to preeclampsia. So it was weird because traditionally we we treated these patients as a see-and-treat approach. Well, let's just wait and if we see bad high blood pressure, like in the severe range, then we'll treat it. But now it's moving back a domino, which is, well, we should really be preventing it from getting there so that we don't have to see and treat. Let's do prevention at a treatment line or a cutoff of 140 over 90. And that's for gestational, that's for preeclampsia, or even chronic hypertension. Again, CHAP and CHIP really changed the way that we look at blood pressure control antepartum, which leads me into this next section. All right, even though we don't have really one clear winner of which medication is best antepartum, there is one that's a lead contender for that title. Look, podcast family, when I tell you stuff moves fast, I mean, it moves fast because I did this podcast back in January 2022 about how one antihypertensive medication's antepartum seems to have better data, both for the mom and the child. And this actually came out of the journal Hypertension, which is from the American Heart Association, okay? Back in January of this year, the start of 2022, that article was, quote, Oral Antihypertensives for Non-Severe Pregnancy Hypertension. This was a systematic review, network meta-analysis, and a trial sequence analysis. End quote. This January 2022 publication took randomized trials for antihypertensive medications used for non-severe pregnancy hypertension to see which one kind of stood out as being the most beneficial or protective of both the mother and the child. And what they found is that while all commonly prescribed antihypertensives in pregnancy can reduce the risk of severe hypertension, in other words, it can help prevent escalation, that sound familiar? That's the same thing that Chip and Chap found. But they actually found again January 2022 that labetalol could also decrease proteinuria and preeclampsia as well as fetal and newborn death. Now again, just to be clear, this is control of either gestational hypertension or preeclampsia or chronic hypertension. This is not having to do with the treatment for acute urgent hypertension, that's a whole other issue, all right, so just to be clear, for antepartum control of blood pressure like CHIP and CHAP requested or recommended, labetalol, according to the American Heart Association, seems to be the most beneficial. Now, for those of you getting ready to do your oral boards, here's a quick little side note. Because if you mention labetalol or nifedipine, which we're talking about in a minute, or any medication for that matter, you know it's an open invitation for those oral board examiners to say, well, since you brought that up, uh, tell me about its mechanism of action. Oh, I remember that well. And it's pretty legit, right? I mean, if you're ordering a medication, you should know how it works. So here's a quick review. Remember that labetalol is a non selective beta blocker, hits beta 1 and beta 2, but also selectively antagonizes the alpha 1 adrenergic receptors. Following oral administration, labetalol has three times the beta-blocking ability than its alpha-blocking ability. But when you give it IV, that affinity for the beta-blocking actually increases seven times. Isn't that crazy? But there is, remember, that alpha-1 effect. So antagonism of that alpha-1 adrenergic receptor leads to peripheral vasodilation and decreased vascular resistance. This leads to that decrease in blood pressure that's actually most pronounced while standing. Antagonism of the beta adrenergic receptor, specifically beta-1, leads to a slight decrease in heart rate. Antagonism of the beta-2 adrenergic receptor leads to some of the side effects of libidol, like bronchospasm. However, this may be slightly attenuated by the alpha-1 adrenergic antagonism. Alright, that's all fine and good, but remember there's more to labetalol because its main attractive agent, its main benefit, its main mechanism of action is what it does on the heart because of that beta-1 effect. That's why it's an attractive agent for treating myocardial ischemia in other patients. This drug not only reduces that peripheral blood pressure, but it reduces left ventricular wall tension, heart rate, and contractility. So what's the summary? Remember that labetalol is mixed. That beta-1 effect, that beta-1 blocking agent has its main effect on the heart and also causes some peripheral vasodilation because of the alpha-1 adrenergic blockade. Now, as its rival, nifedipine's mechanism of action is that it blocks the voltage-gated calcium channels in vascular smooth muscle as well as myocardial cells. But this blockage tends to be more heavily evident in the peripheral vasculature, so it reduces peripheral arteriovascular resistance, and it also helps to dilate things like the coronary arteries. Labedol does that also, but Procardia does that much more successfully. This is why you can get that reflex in heart rate because you do get a main action of procardia or nifedipine as a relaxation of the peripheral vasculature. So remember, a little bit of cerebrovascular dilation leads, leads to a little bit of that headache that patients get with nifedipine, and that's why they can also get a little bit of an increase in heart rate, unlike labetalol, which gives you a blockade of heart rate. Nifedipine can, can increase heart rate because of that peripheral vascular resistance. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's circle back to this new article coming out October the first about postpartum readmission based on whether the patient was sent home on labetalol or nifedipine. Now we've already established that according to the American Heart Association, labetalol seems to be the best for antepartum hyperlip pressure control. However, remember that ACOG has not taken the stance to endorse any one antihypertensive medication over the other. They just want you to treat it. Remember they did give that response when the CHAP trial came out, saying, "Yeah, we should probably treat them," but but it didn't really push one or the other. Well, wouldn't it be nice if labetalol carried that benefit antepartum of reduced severity and potential neonatal benefit, and the same thing was found for postpartum? That'd be easy, right? Well, why can't medicine be that way? Because that's not what was found according to this new study. But here's a catch. This wasn't a direct patient prospective cohort. That's not how this was done. This study took a look at codes. It's a database query. The cohort study was drawn from patient discharge data from delivery and postpartum hospitalizations between 2006 and 2017. I mean, it's over 10 years, and that's great, but it is a database search, not a prospective cohort study. These researchers included patients between the ages of 15 and 55—I'm not sure how many patients they had at 55—but nonetheless, who were discharged on labetalol, nifedipine, or both, and it's very simple. They wanted to see how many bounced back or had a readmission for hypertension based on which medication they were on. Okay, so check this out. They used pharmacy claims, okay, pharmacy records, to see which prescriptions were filled up to four days post-delivery. Now, do y'all get that? So, all right, let's see who was discharged on what medicine. Let's look up their pharmacy and see if they filled their medication. But just because they had it filled doesn't mean they actually took the medication. Y'all get that? So that's a big limitation, and a flag. But we'll cover those limitations at the end. The period of time that they looked for readmissions was up to six weeks postpartum. As an interesting note, they found that patients discharged on both medications, labetalol and nifedipine, tended to be older than patients discharged on either monotherapy and were likely to have underlying chronic hypertension, chronic renal disease, cesarean delivery, and were likely to deliver preterm than patients on monotherapy. I mean, that makes sense, right? Obviously, there's something else going on. They're sicker, so they're required dual agents for blood pressure control. Let's get to the results. Readmission for hypertension occurred among 2.1% of patients on nifedipine, but 4.5% for patients on labetalol. For those on both medications, the readmission rate oddly was right in the middle, at about 3%. And the odds for readmission for hypertension were significantly higher for patients on labetalol compared with nifedipine, with an adjusted odds ratio of 1.63. All right, so after a bunch of statistics and a bunch of regression, what was the final take-home? Well, it's easy. In this large cohort database study, postpartum patients discharged on labetalol were more likely to be admitted for hypertension regardless of the severity of their hypertensive disorder of pregnancy. This is compared to those discharged on nifedipine monotherapy. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, well, wait a minute. Why would one be better than the other in general? Not talking about BMI or race, because remember that in theory, according to past data, for those African-American patients, that calcium channel blockers like nifedipine are supposed to be more effective in black patients than in others. So was, was that an issue? So there's all these other factors. But remember, this is just a database search. But why would one medication be better than the other? Well, specifically for postpartum hypertension or preeclampsia, remember that postpartum edema and volume overload also contribute to hypertension. So in the postpartum interval, as that third space fluid gets mobilized back into the vasculature, you're putting more water into the pipes. And that's how you can get that rebound of high blood pressure in that postpartum interval as that fluid mobilizes. And nifedipine is associated with improved renal blood flow that can give increased diuresis and can be more effective for postpartum blood pressure control because you can get that fluid off. But my answer to that is, well, why not just give them Lasix? I mean, I'm a big fan of Lasix. There's another podcast on that that you can go into the archive. Because historically, we didn't give diuretics for preeclampsia because somehow we were going to make them, you know, pre-renal or something. Well, that's not the case. You can give Lasix for blood pressure control in preeclampsia, and it works great, especially when there's a large amount of peripheral edema. So I get the idea, nifedipine, you're going to increase renal blood flow, and they're probably going to pee more, and so that's why it's better. But if you're worried about volume overload or thirst-based mobilization, just give them Lasix and be done with it. Now, wait a minute. I'm not saying about giving patients Lasix for six weeks. Not at all. I'm saying during that acute postpartum hospitalization, if there's a lot of third space fluid still there, especially if their urine output is uh, just barely maintaining normalcy, then give them that either oral or IV push of Lasix because you can really help mobilize that fluid and drop pressures by the time they go home.